All right, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today in Luke. As you're turning there, just uh, don't know if you have noticed this or not, but um, in our society, it seems that um, people make a lot out of work. Uh, Work has become an idol, right? Uh, People who are working endless hours, endless hours, endless hours to feel fulfillment and success. And when people do seek rest, they seem to seek it in things like uh, trips to the mountains or trips to the beach or uh, just a family day. Let's just make it us and the family playing games or go to the golf course or shopping or video games, whatever it is. But this idea of uh, Sabbath rest is, is kind of foreign to our thinking, uh, culturally specifically, just not us. We just don't think Sabbath rest, even for good church-going people who uh, set Sunday aside and that's our day of rest and we go to church, that's what we do. Really, the idea of Sabbath and what is Sabbath is confusing. It's, it's, um, it's not what we think about or what we understand. I know even approaching the text this week, uh, as we met on Tuesday in my office and we're talking through the text, just like, I'll be honest, I just, I don't get Sabbath. I don't know that I understand Sabbath. And so uh, now you're excited to hear from me, and that's why I want to share that. But, um, but as we come to the text, really, I'm, I'm sharing that because probably we have questions as we approach this topic and this text. And certainly we have needs, and, and even more than that, we come with hope because we have God's word. And so let's read. Uh, I'm going to read you, follow along, just stand. Luke 6, starting with verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Bible, your holy word. Thank you for entrusting it to us. And I pray by your spirit that you would work in our hearts. Give us hearts that are receptive, Lord, that long for the pure spiritual milk of your word and a seed that you would plant it deep into our hearts and it would produce a harvest in us. Help us, I pray, Lord, In Christ's name, amen. 
ahead and have a seat. What's happening in the account here in verses 1 through 11? You have two encounters uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus. And in both encounters between the Pharisees and Jesus, the Pharisees are concerned about a certain command being kept properly or being obeyed properly. The fourth commandment is the commandment concerning the Sabbath. The fourth commandment from Exodus 20 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now this is the command as Moses gives it. And God's absolutely serious, serious about this command. Serious that people obey the Sabbath, that they work six days and then they don't work the seventh day. So serious that later in Exodus chapter 31 verse 15, it says that if you do any work on the Sabbath, you will be put to death. So imagine being the recipients of that. God has spoken And said, you're going to work six days, and on the seventh day, you don't work at all. And if you do work, you're going to die. Well, if you're a person who receives that, it makes sense that you would begin to ask questions. What should we do? What can we do? What's permissible to do? What is work? What are the things that we're not allowed to do so that we don't do those things and then find ourselves dead? Right? Because this is a big deal. God has made it a big deal. And so people are rightly going to be thinking these questions. You have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good at looking at the commands and then asking, what does that mean? And so then they would put rules on top of the rules that God had given. They put fences around the fences that God had made. They added to, they built on top of God's laws, God's commands. And so in the case of the Sabbath, the Pharisees asked, well, what designates worth? And then they work, and then they became uh, consumed with it to where they come up with 39 rules on top of God's law of obey the Sabbath to explain to the people and define to the people, well, this is what work is. And it was crazy. You could only walk a certain distance from your home, or that's work. You could only uh, carry something as heavy as a dried fig, or now that's a burden, and that's work. So just ridiculous laws on top of God's law to say, if you do anything beyond what we have prescribed, then you're working, and you're breaking the law. So we come to Luke chapter 6. We have these encounters with Jesus and the Pharisees with this mindset, having put their own fences around God's fence, putting laws on top of his laws. They're approaching it this way. So you have the Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field, it says, and they're they're plucking grain and rubbing it in their hands. They rub it in their hands to remove the chaff so that the kernel of grain is there and they can eat. They're hungry. And they're walking through this field. It wasn't their field. It was someone else's field. And they're walking through this field, plucking 
grain and eating grain. Well, the Pharisees see this and they're like, you can't do that because all of us here know, right? If you pull something and then rub that something in your hand and then move to toss it in your mouth, that's laborious, right? That's a burden, right? That's, that's work. And so they're like, you can't do that. You can't, you're breaking the law. You're doing what God has commanded not to do. You're working, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. Why would you do what would break God's law? Well, the, the truth is they weren't breaking God's law. God had provided for this in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, you can pluck grain off if you're hungry. That's why they're, uh, they're commanded to leave extra when they harvest. Leave, leave that on the outside so that if the poor or those who in need come through, they can, they can eat. So it wasn't a sin for them to pluck grain. What, what would have been a sin for them to do for, it was for them to work and to harvest. So if Jesus and his disciples come with like these harvesting forks, winnowing forks, and they're like uh, have mules and, and carts and things like that, and they're harvesting this guy's field for him, well, that's work. But to do what they're doing was not sinful. But how does Jesus respond? He doesn't even address that. He doesn't go to Deuteronomy. He says... In Luke 6, he answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He reminds them of this time when David goes into the house of the Lord. His men are hungry and tired. He's hungry and tired. And he approaches the priest and says, do you have any food? Do you have anything we could eat? Well, there was, there was only one portion of food in the house of the Lord, and that was the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was a gift to God. And it was only, as Jesus says in Luke 6, it was only permitted to be eaten by the priest. And so David and his men who were tired and hungry come in and they ask the priest, and the priest says, this is all I've got is the bread of the presence. What What does he do? He gave it to David and to his men to eat What is that? Why is he doing that and why is it permitted? Because at no point does does, does the scripture say that David sinned in what he did. Well, the picture that's painted there for us is that's mercy. It's merciful for the priest to look at people who are in need and who are hungry and give them this food. That's mercy. That's, That's grace. There was a need met by God. That's mercy. In fact, in Matthew 12, which is the same uh, story that we're going, uh, looking at in, in Luke 6 here. In Matthew 12, it goes on. Matthew's account goes on and, and Jesus tells another story about or reminds them about um, the priests who work on the Sabbath every week. Have you ever considered, he says, the priests who every week they work on the Sabbath in the temple but are guiltless? They're not God doesn't consider them breaking the Sabbath. Why? What they're doing is merciful. There's a need that's being met by the priest. That's mercy. Again, in Matthew 12, he goes on and he says to the Pharisees in response, if you had just known, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What God is saying is, my desire is that you would des- know that I desire mercy, that I'm a God of mercy and grace. 
And so as we see in both of the circumstances that we're looking at today, both in the grain field and in the synagogue, there's hungry disciples and a crippled man. And in both situations, there's need and there's mercy being shown. And Jesus concludes this encounter in verse 5. It says, he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. Now we're going to come back to that. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. It goes on in verses 6 through 11. We see another encounter. This is a totally separate day. On another Sabbath, it says, he enters the synagogue and he's teaching. And as he's teaching, it says that the Pharisees are watching. Now, there's a crippled man who's sitting there in the midst of the people in the synagogue. And we don't know what the circumstances surrounding that are. Maybe the Pharisees have noticed how the crippled man is approaching, what he's looking, something about the crippled man. There's, there's anticipation, there's desire. Maybe he's come and they can tell just in the way he's approaching. This guy has come hoping to get to Jesus because we know what Jesus does when crippled people come around. And so this man with a withered hand comes and he's sitting there and these Pharisees are just watching, waiting. Maybe it's just that they know that Jesus is going to care for this man. And so they're watching, it says. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might find a reason to accuse him. Scribes and Pharisees have had it with Jesus. They're done. They're done with the kingdom talk. They're done with the miracles. They're done with this man who's, who's elevating himself on the level of God. And so if they can just find something, if we can just catch him in something, if we see that he breaks the law some way, then we've got him. We can dismiss him in the minds of the people. We can get rid of him for good. And so they're watching, they're watching, they're watching. But what does Jesus do in this circumstance? It says that he knows their thoughts. Again, we see this where by the power of the Holy Spirit working, he's full of the Spirit and he knows their thoughts. He knows what's going on. He knows that they're thinking, we're going to catch you. You're going to say something. You're going to do something. If you heal this man, we've got you. And then we're going to get rid of you. He knows their thoughts. And what does he do? I think this is important because he doesn't rationalize and think, well, maybe I should wait. I'll wait till later. Well, we'll wait till afterwards and I can just pull the, the, the man with the withered hand aside and that way, you know, people don't get all stirred up or angry or whatever and everything. Well, that would be better if I wait. He doesn't do that. He does what's right. He does what's righteous. He shows mercy in that exact moment. In the circumstance, knowing their thoughts, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. Imagine this man, he rises up, he stands there in the midst of the people. Jesus said to the people, he asked them this, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? To do nothing, for Jesus to do nothing, for the Pharisees to do nothing would be harmful to this man. It wouldn't be helpful. It would be harmful. For, for them to do nothing, which is what the Pharisees would do, it would not be saving his life. It would be destroying his life. But Jesus knows that God desires mercy. And so it says he looks around and in Mark's account of the same story, it says that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. 
that they had no mercy, that they didn't care. They cared about their rules. They cared about their religious goings on. They didn't care about this man, and certainly they didn't care about God's heart for this man. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand, something that the man could not do before. And again, by the power of Jesus' word, he does, and his hand was restored. That's what Jesus has come to do, to restore, to restore paralytics whose greatest need is that their sins would be forgiven, not that they could get up and walk. To restore uh, unclean lepers by putting his hands on them and speaking and that they would be clean. To restore all things. To restore the Sabbath. Now here's the question I want us to think through. Why does Jesus do this? How could he do this? And ultimately, here's the question, I think, to answer that. What does it mean that Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath? What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath? If that's his statement, as they're coming to him with their rules and their assumptions and their misunderstanding of what God's heart is about the day or the Sabbath day, and Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Sabbath serves the Son of Man? What does it mean that the Sabbath serves him? And so to answer that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning where the first Sabbath was displayed. Back in Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. We'll start reading at Genesis 1.31. It says, And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let me ask you this. What does it mean that God rested. Have you ever thought, why would God rest? <laughs> God can't get tired. That's, that's part of the, I'm God, right? I mean, he's God. He doesn't get tired. So why does it say that God rested on the seventh day, when he finished all of his work, he rested. It doesn't just say that. Later in Genesis, it says in Genesis 31 that he rested from his work and was refreshed. So, so what does it mean then that God, the God of the universe who holds all things together and never gets tired, in what sense does he rest? What does it mean that God rested from his work? Well, if you think through the account of creation, 
What does God say over and over and over throughout the account of creation? He, he creates light. He creates uh, all, the, all the light and, and, and all of the uh, land and, and separates land from land. And at the end of each day, as he's creating and going through the six days of creation, what does he continue to say? It's good, right? He, he creates light and, 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 and at the end of the first day he says it's good he creates land he creates uh, all living creatures and 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 all plants and all things and each day he looks at what he created that day and it's good and then at the culmination of creation after the sixth day the climax of all creation in verse 31 he looks and he says what it is very Good. This is very good. And then it says that he rested on the seventh day. It's very good. That's what it means for God to rest. As Tim Keller puts it, it's rest is to be utterly satisfied. Completely satisfied. And so for us, the only way that we can truly rest is to be utterly satisfied in our work. To be able to say, yes, it's good. It's done. I can rest. God rested. He was satisfied in his work. And then you have to turn all the way over to chapter 3, right? A couple days. And sin enters the world and rest is broken. So much so that if you go to chapter 5, you got this guy Lamech who has a son after he's lived 182 years. And what's he name his son? Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest. This longing for rest to be restored. And then the law is given and God commands that a day be set apart because he had rested on the seventh day. That a day be observed for rest. A day wholly set apart to the Lord. And so that's being observed over and over and over and over and over and over again. And we come to Luke chapter 6 and it's being observed religiously. There are people who are mandating, expecting this is going to be observed. And in fact, this is what it means to not observe it in the, wrong, in the right way. This is what it means to work on the Sabbath. This is what it means to carry too much on the Sabbath, to carry a burden on the Sabbath. So it's being observed. This day is being set apart and observed and no work is being done on this day. You have the Pharisees observing it religiously, adding rules on to protect it and yet something's missing. There's no rest. They're observing a day, but they're not resting. In fact, we can see in the text today Verse 11, you have this man, Jesus, who's come and he's resting. He's relieving people. He's bringing rest to people. He's uh, setting captives free, announcing that the poor have hope. And he's resting. 
But what are the Pharisees doing? It says in verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're observing the day. They've got that fixed, okay? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. Let's work these days, the seventh day. We're taking that off. We are, we're not working on the seventh day, but they're not resting. They're furious, They're filled with fury because of Jesus, the one who's come from God, this one who's speaking and and bringing life to people. They are furious in the midst of that. There's no rest in them. There's no peace in them. Something's missing in their religious viewing of this day off. And even in their seeking to protect the Sabbath, confronting Jesus, Jesus says to them, you're missing the point. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the point of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean that the Sabbath serves Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I reign over the Sabbath. Well, to get there, let's go further and look at Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter three, chapters 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting Christians about what it means to believe in Jesus. He's exhorting them to believe. Don't stop believing. Don't give up. Don't harden your hearts. And in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, he's reminding them about the Israelites who were supposed to enter the promised land and find rest, but they hardened their hearts. And so he warns them, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts. They didn't believe God. And so he exhorts the believers, the writer of Hebrews, exhorts the believers, don't harden your hearts. Don't be like them. In verse 19, he says, So we see that they were unable to enter God's rest, the promised land. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't believe God, so they didn't find the rest that he offered. And then in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says something like this. There's still a chance. There's still hope for rest. There's still rest to be entered. Years after the children of Israel, because remember the the Israelites who hardened their hearts, God killed them except for uh, Joshua and Caleb. And they led their children, the children of those that died in the wilderness, they led them into the promised land. In hopes that this is it, this is the rest that's been promised. This is the rest that was to come. This is the rest that was pointed to. But then as the writer of Hebrews says, years and years later, David says again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Starting with verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That wasn't it. That wasn't the rest that was to come. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, verse 11, therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now what does that mean? It means this. It is possible, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it is possible for you and for me to look at our work, to look at our life the same way that God looked at his work. If you go back to the garden, days one through six, God works, and at the end of six days, he looks at his work and he says what? It is very good. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's absolutely satisfied. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All the work that I need to do is finished. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you can look at your life and say the same thing about your life. All the work that needs to be done has been finished. It's utterly satisfied. How is that possible? That's the point of what the writer of Hebrews is making. Believe. In Christ, in Christ, the work is satisfied. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting the believers that he's writing to trust in the work of Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Trust in the work of Christ. The Pharisees are trusting in their own work. Their own laws that they have made up. They've added And that leaves them with nothing but the attention of man. But Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of rest. If you want rest, you come to me. And the Sabbath is fulfilled in him and it's granted through him. In the same way, just as at the end of the six days, he looked and said, it is very good. It's finished and he rested so in the same way christ came and lived a perfect life that the pharisees and that i and that you could never live lived perfectly and then was treated as a transgressor and was killed slaughtered on a cross for the sins of mankind to make payment for the sins of men And before he dies on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. The work is done. It is very good. And so now whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in his work and not their own will be saved. That's the gospel. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't stop trusting in that. Don't start trusting again in your work. Keep believing the gospel The Sabbath day is an arrow. From the very beginning, the Sabbath day is an arrow. In the Old Testament, it's an arrow pointing forward to the work that would be accomplished by Christ where we can finally find rest in God. And now as a reminder of the rest that we have in Christ. See, the difference between a Sabbath and a weekend 
is the Sabbath is purposeful. It reminds us that we are completely dependent, that we ultimately find our rest in God alone, not in a day off. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves him. It was always about him. Now, lastly, the question that we have is, well, do I have to obey the Sabbath then? <laughs> do I have to observe the Sabbath? If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, if he says to the people, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the Lord of rest, you're not going to find rest apart from me. I have come to fulfill it. Then do I have to observe the Sabbath? Are we still commanded to take a Sabbath? Are we going to go law or are we going to go grace here? What are we going to do? I would answer broadly, absolutely. In two ways. First, by responding to the writer of Hebrews, to his exhortation, believe, believe. Stop trusting in your work. Start, stop finding your identity in your work and trust completely. Be utterly satisfied in the work of Christ. Christ's finished work on your behalf. He's Lord of rest. If you don't trust in him, if you're not trusting in him, then you're not going to have rest. You can set this day apart, Sunday. And you can come here religiously. You can set this day aside and say, we, we are, we're church people. We're Christians. And we, that's what we do on Sundays. We go to church. You can do this religiously. But if you're not trusting in Christ, you're just as hopeless as the Pharisees. You're not going to rest You're not going to find rest. Sabbath is different than just a day off. It's trusting in the rest that we get in Christ. It's purposeful. So first, yes, absolutely, we are commanded to to Sabbath ultimately in Jesus. Just like the writer of Hebrews says, trust in him. Don't doubt him. Don't disbelieve. Don't harden your heart. But secondly, yes, you should take a day of the week for Sabbath. Not just a day off, for Sabbath. For most people, Sunday is probably best. In the Old Testament, yes, they, uh, Sabbath was Saturday. It's the seventh day, Saturday. But then Jesus comes along and dies and then is raised from the dead on Sunday. And believers start gathering on Sundays and worshiping him on Sundays in honor of his resurrection instead of on Saturday. That's good. There's grace. That's a good thing. That's a Sabbath. But we ought to take a Sabbath. And I'm just going to quickly give you five reasons or five things to consider. First of all, my body needs it. Your body needs it. My body was created to need rest. God didn't need rest. 
We do. Our bodies are created in the image of God, but not as God. We get that mixed up. There's times where I begin to pretend and think that I am God. I could do whatever I want, and, and, and it, that's not how we're made. Our bodies are made to rest, and God gave us an example by resting on the seventh day. And the truth is that many people, so many people in our society find their identity in work. They make their work an idol. And so their resistance to taking a day off is because they worship who they are in their job more than they worship God. And they find their identity in their job more than they find their identity in Christ. So my body needs it. Secondly, my family needs it. I personally take Saturdays off because that works best, not because it's the actual Sabbath, but because it works best for our family. This doesn't count. I'm working. Even though I love what I do, this is part of my employment. This is part of my job. So I rest on Saturdays. I used to take uh, Fridays and Saturdays off. I cheated on that big time. Friday would come along. Hey, babe, I just got to go into the office just like an hour, two hours. Saturday, same. Hey, I I didn't finish everything up. Just got to go in for a couple hours. Then it's just you and the kids. Promise, right? That's cheating. That's not. That's not considering my family and and the responsibilities I've been given for my family and the rest that they need with their dad. And so for us, we decided it's it's best. It's it's best to to honor God and to honor the family. For me to work Sunday through Friday and then to protect Saturday, and that's our day. My family needs that. Third, my soul needs it. You and I need rest in Christ. We need extended time. I know we say here a lot, preach the gospel to yourself every day in all circumstances. If you're going into a meeting at your office, preach the gospel to yourself in that circumstance. But we need extended time. We need time where we're rehearsing the gospel and resting in the gospel. My soul needs that. And if it's Sunday for you, that's great. One of the wonderful points in Hebrews 3 and 4 is that the writer of Hebrews is saying is this is a collective deal. This is a community endeavor. That all together we ought to be fighting for the faith of each other. Encouraging one another all the more as the day is approaching. Encourage each other. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you and in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Exhort one another every day, he says, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our souls need it. We need that time extended where we're rehearsing the gospel to our own hearts and to each other. We need it. Fourth, just as an encouragement, Sabbath is intended to be a reminder, a time that we rehearse the truths that we are dependent on Christ. We're dependent on the mercy of the one who gives rest. Jesus didn't do away with the Sabbath in the grain field. He didn't say that. He didn't say, ah, you're wrong. I've come to do away with this. He said, I'm Lord of it. I'm the giver of rest. And so we rest from our physical labor, remembering that our true rest is in Christ. And lastly, the point of the Sabbath is not rules, it's Christ. 
It's rest in Christ. Pharisees made it about rules. Jesus says, no, 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 it's about me. I'm the Lord of this. I'm the Lord of rest. If you're not resting and, and you, you know that you're trusting in Christ, but you're not experiencing rest, it's, it's because you haven't embraced or believed your new identity in him, that the work is done. It's finished. That you can look at your own life hidden in Christ and say, you are beloved by God and nothing will change that. The work is accomplished. It's finished. There is nothing you can do to add to the goodness of the gospel. It's as sweet as it could possibly get. The Sabbath is for worship. It's for restoration. As we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 10, what does Jesus do? He restores. It's for mercy, for good works and mercy as he shows us. It's about him. Each week we come here and we finish our time together taking the bread and the cup. The rest that we need is found in Christ. And just as we read where he says, he calls, summons to us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest. In the same way, the reason we do this week in and week out is He's bidding with the same words as we come to the table to take the bread and the cup. Come to me. Come to me. Sup with me. Feast with me. Partake of me. Remember me. Rehearse the gospel again as you take the bread and take the cup. That's what we're doing. We're remembering that we we are completely dependent on Jesus. That the rest we have, the rest we find is because of Him. Because of His work for us. His body was broken and His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. In Matthew 26, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and He says, It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I would encourage you this morning, as we hold the bread and hold the cup, to really consider, am I trusting in Christ? Am I trusting in the work that he accomplished, fully accomplished, On the cross, am I dependent upon him or am I hoping in myself? And let's come to him believing the gospel that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. In fact, Paul says in Acts 3, 19, Repent therefore and return in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That your sins may be wiped away and and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Our, Our hope of rest is in him. And even as we consider things and, and ways that we've idolized work or, or, or not considered Him in, in, in our Sabbath, we come to Him and hope in Him and trust in Him for the forgiveness of those. He's made it all right. 
And so we can come and take the bread and the cup in a way that rehearses in our hearts and rehearses to each other as we proclaim together the Lord's death, that the gospel is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace, Lord. We are utterly dependent upon you and because of you we can look at our own lives that have been wrecked with sin. We can look at our own lives and say it is good. Every thing, every work that I would ever need to do has been done in Christ. And so God, it is a joy for us to come. Jesus, it is a it is a blessing for us to approach the table to take the bread and take the cup and know that you have promised that in that we are proclaiming the gospel, your death until you come and that in that you meet with us that there's a particular fellowship that we have with you, a special means of grace that we receive in taking the bread and the cup. If we are hidden in you, Lord, because of you, we approach the table with joy. And so help us, even as we hold the bread and hold the cup, help us to not take this in an unworthy manner. Help us to rehearse the joyful news of the gospel again in our own hearts. As we consider your body that was broken and your blood that was shed, help us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.